I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science with me, Clive Cookson. Today, we'll be talking about government support for technology research and about the so-called love hormone oxytocin, which turns out to have an aggressive side too. One of our regulars in the studio, my colleague Andrew Jack, is away this week at meetings first in Washington, D.C., and then in St. Petersburg. I hope he'll be back next week with some interesting tales from his travels. But fortunately, our other regular guest, Diana Garnham, who's Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council, is here. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. And we're also joined in the studio by David Bott, who's Director of Innovation Platforms at the UK Technology Strategy Board, or TSB. Hello, David. Good morning, Clive. So perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about what the TSB is and what you do. Uh, Sure. Uh, The Technology Strategy Board is um, one of those crangos. It was set up about three years ago as a spin-out from what was then the Department of Trade and Industry, And it is uh, an agency designed to support innovation in UK businesses. Um, We try, we apply a a series of criteria to select areas to work in, and then we have competitions, and the best ideas that answer the most interesting challenges for the UK get funded. How much funding do you have to offer? We have about uh, 250 million a year. And I think I'm right in saying that both or rather all three parties in the election campaign, were very pro-TSB. So whatever is going to happen with cuts and so on, are you fairly confident about TSB's prospects? Uh, Fairly confident. Who can tell? I mean, it is a a time of austerity, so I'm sure everybody will take a bit of pain. I've spent most of my uh, life in industry, and everybody always takes a bit of the pain. Okay. Well, tell us about some of the specific areas that are most exciting for you. Um. We range across all sorts of areas. There are a number of problems that that we we tackle. Um, perhaps I'll, I'll start with uh, the idea of intelligent transport. Um, we are, as um, a species, addicted to travel. We um, we we just love it. Um, if you look at the statistics, it says it all. Um, there are about thirty four million cars on the road in the UK, and we travel something over four hundred billion passenger miles a year in the UK alone. That's about 12,000 miles a year, uh, a car. There are about 4,000 trains on our railways. Uh, We make about 980 million journeys a year, and that totals 25 billion passenger miles. So our average journey in a train is only 25 and a bit miles. Uh, And if you go to airplanes, um, there's only about 18,000 passenger airplanes in the world that, that take us around, but we travel something like 1.5 trillion passenger miles a year around the globe. So we desperately love travel, and and what that means is that we travel more and more, and the amount of room on the roads, on the railways, uh, in the air is going down. So we're looking at systems that give you what we call intelligent transport. You don't set out to travel; 
you set out to be in the place you get to at the end of your travel. So it's actually quite an interesting problem. Um, and there are roughly two ways of tackling that. There's a command and control process whereby you tell people where they have to be and they're there. Or there's uh, what's usually referred to as swarming, when all the individual units act cooperatively for maximum impact. Um, different transport mechanisms have different versions of those applied. If you take airplanes, uh, there are routes over the skies around the world where you are rigorously controlled. Most of the large passenger jets go there. You have to be in the right place at the right time. You cannot deviate from the instructions from traffic control or else we have accidents. Outside of those routes, the individual airplanes are given enough information to know where the other airplanes are and it's, of course, in their own interest not to hit one another. But in roads, we actually don't have very good control systems, and so our roads are quite inefficient, hence congestion. We have things like traffic lights, we have things like speed limits, but we have a thriving industry to control the people who don't obey those rules. Um, and what's happening these days is more and more information is being made available to the individual driver. Who is then overloaded. Absolutely. So the problem becomes not about whether... Uh, we give information through a television screen or whether we make some of those control mechanisms semi-autonomous, i.e. the car knows a bit about where you're going. It knows how to, to adjust the route. It gives you only the pieces of information you need to control your journey. And you could, if all this works, get a very much more efficient journey and, of course, a very much more enjoyable journey. I think it was fascinating listening to you because what you're bringing together is the opportunity from the research and what we understand might be possible in different areas with human behaviour. And it seems to me that's one of the challenges, isn't it, for TSB, that you might be investing in innovation and want businesses to do well and to pick up these ideas. But how do we get that mix of skills together, the mix of those questions together to get the right questions to then get the right solution in business? We've, we've been going for, for three years and one of the strange things that happened, because we were, were spun out of government, uh, we were uh, packed off down to Swindon um, and we lost virtually all of the old innovation unit in the Department of Trade Industry. So what happened was we recruited... Uh, people from business so actually there are something like a hundred odd people for us now we're something over 1200 years of business experience between us so we set out to, to understand the problem uh, we very much believe in this idea of challenge-led innovation if you can present and articulate the challenge in a way you unlock the creativity of the people who are answering the challenge you don't tell them what the answer is you tell them what the problem is uh, very very clearly and and one of the things we've we've had a lot of success with is what we call innovation platforms which is where we understand the enormous societal challenges. Travel, transport uh, is, a, is a problem that faces all of society. And, of course, governments take responsibility for dealing with societal challenges. Um, so what we did was we worked very closely with the Department for Transport to understand what they were doing, what they required, what their policy was, what they saw the future was. And then we, started, we set to developing the technologies. Um, you know, forgive us, we were technologists when we started on this journey. It took us a long while to, to realise that when, when there's societal challenges, they do involve people. And so increasingly we've been moving towards leavening the technology with that very understanding. We work extensively with the, the Economic and Social Sciences Research Council um, to understand things. So if all goes well and the people cooperate, what will the intelligent road of the mid 21st century, maybe that's too far ahead. What will the intelligent road of 2025 be like? Well, the 
interesting thing is that uh, the change from um, internal combustion engines to electric cars will probably force it to happen faster because actually when you have an electric car looking after that electrical energy is part of the, of the mix and so where you are where you're going whether there's a hill in front of you a, 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 a going up or down are all part of what the car needs to manage its efficiency so if you look at the new electric cars that are coming out they have many of these systems already built in so you will start to get these cars on the road within five to ten years um, how long it is before we get to that that infamous television advert about the intersection where the cars are all going with no traffic lights that's probably about 2030 but again the problem and it comes back to Diana's point is about the people would you really trust a car to control you when your life was there now it's it's quite fascinating about the relationship between people and technology um, you don't think that your brakes won't work but they might not so we have to learn to trust these electronic control systems because they will give us with suitable redundancy the absolute safety we need to be able to manage the traffic flow very much more effectively well, we're already coping with the headlines about gps and it always ending up in a field instead of the hotel it doesn't you're aiming always to. end up in a field <laughs> anyway well by 2030 you and i are going to i wonder if we'll still be driving that brings us on to another interesting technology you're working on which is assisted living that also brings in people how are old people going to be coping in 2030 um well, again, this was working with the Department for Health. We, we, one of the first things they, they recognised when we went to talk to them was that the system for how we will uh, look after the ageing society um, in the years to come is, is fascinating. Um, I've um, worked out that, that I have a, a something like a 75% probability of, of making it to 85. That's a basic statistics, not actuarial. It doesn't take account of my lifestyle. Uh, and, and you know, I, I, quite often you talk to people who are in the, the, those sort of age range. You know, when I get there, there will be three to three and a half times more 85-year-olds than there are currently in our society because we are all living longer. But actually, the, the demographics mean that you'll be roughly the same number of 20 to 30-year-olds who will be the doctors and nurses who would look after you. So the current care model of looking after old people is not going to work. So the basic business is not going to be there. Um, of course, the medical technologies that are dealing with the diseases of the ageing body are also increasingly uh, there. Um, cancer, um, musculoskeletal problems, uh, dementia and those sorts of things will all not be around to the same degree by the, the time we get there. But the, the society has to adjust. So the system that lo enables you to look after yourself, to communicate, to monitor early stage onset of, of any kind of illness will have to be very again semi-automatic so your house will probably monitor you by the time uh, i'm 85 and tell you what you should do in the morning whether you can go golfing or whether you should stay at home and surf the web or visit the doctor it's very much about monitoring and information but in the shorter term isn't there much more that one could do in terms of using technology to deliver the health care to elderly people or people who are actually in their homes much more effectively? I mean, I recall a report we did on integrated technologies a couple of years ago where it was quite evident that the NHS came up with, you know, locally, chose a bit of technology that seemed to work and implemented that locally. Now, it may have been very effective, but the evaluation for that, because it required, you know, evaluation of the people's response and the user's response to it, isn't done and therefore there's actually quite a lot of technology already in use that we no, don't know whether it's effective 
the problem is is the business model for it because who provides that um that you're right there's lots of technologies and they are constantly evolving and and, and, and new ones are coming along but we don't have a, a business framework in which to supply that and that's part of the problem because without the business framework you don't get standards and you might come out with a piece of technology that works well in your home but if you pop next door to the neighbour and fall over it won't record I'm it. I'm absolutely delighted you say that because that was the conclusion of the report which oh, says goodness. there was no business model for yeah. the NHS in introducing these. And, 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 and the question is who will provide it? I mean it's no longer obvious. I mean the National Health Service is a wonderful way of doing it but it, it, it's a very large beast which has to change minds. It may be, may be that we, um, you know, we we have private uh, care for the elderly first, and that might be you pay an annuity during your life, which which then pays for it. I personally am planning on guilt tripping my children into paying for me, but you know, there's all sorts of different ways of providing the money. But you're right; it, it, it's having a, a business model that implements it cleanly and organisingly. Okay, well, the TSB is doing far, far, far more than the two areas we talked about, assisted living and intelligent transport. But I think, unfortunately, we need to move on now, move on to Science Magazine and to Robert Frederick in Washington. Thanks, Clive. There are a lot of misconceptions about oxytocin, often called the bonding hormone. It's the love drug. It's beautiful. It makes people generous. It has been called the moral molecule. And they tell me that. Karsten de Droo is professor of social and organizational psychology at the University of Amsterdam. And they tell me, you know, we should spray it on rioting groups because then they become trusting of one another and they become benevolent and riots and heated conflict will disappear. And it's kind of annoying because it's so dead wrong. Oxytocin does not make people trusting everybody. No, it makes you trust your next kin, your close in-group members. And actually, it makes you more aggressive against people you don't trust or you have reason to see as out-group members. And in a paper in the latest issue of Science, Didrou and colleagues report the results of their experiments to back that up. By inducing oxytocin versus a placebo in another condition, those people who were given oxytocin actually displayed more of this trust and in-group benevolence and at the same time more out-group aggression. And because we have induced this oxytocin to some but not other people, we were able to show that oxytocin actually causes, triggers this chain of events, so to speak. And that's the basis for our conclusion that oxytocin really has a causal, is a driver of this in-group cooperation and out-group aggression. At least in a group of males, in a lab experiment, playing a game called the Intergroup Prisoner's Dilemma Maximizing Differences Game. The game was developed, in part, by Nir Halevi, who is not a part of the study. Halevi works at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Because we know that intergroup conflict outside the lab involves hostilities that go well beyond what we usually see in the lab, so I think perhaps the discrepancy between what we see in lab experiments and what we know about the reality of intergroup conflict is one thing that should guide our future research in a sense. And study author Karsten Didrou strongly cautions against using these results to justify giving oxytocin to anyone, particularly soldiers or anyone going to war. And again, these are laboratory experiments, but let's assume that it actually translates and generalizes to those more real-life conflicts. If you give soldiers oxytocin, 
disallow research, you would find two things. First, they would become more generous and self-sacrificing to their fellow soldiers, to their in-group. At the same time, they are more likely to launch a preemptive attack on the out-group, on the competing army. So basically, oxytocin not only leads to bonding within the in-group, which may make your own army stronger, but at the same time, it makes your army, your soldiers, more likely to launch a preemptive strike because they suspect out-group aggression and want to neutralize that. And once you do the preemptive strike, you will get an escalation of the conflict because the other side cannot do anything else but respond with a similar or even stronger attack back. So it's a tricky business to generate straightforward practical implications from these type of studies. Really, it advances theory, it advances our understanding of what humans do and when and why. And ultimately, this should lead to better understanding of how conflicts evolve, where they come from, and how we can manage and and perhaps resolve them. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks to AAAS and Science. So that's another illusion shattered. Oxytocin is a love hormone, but only for the in-group. Do you think, uh, David, we might ever find molecules that can affect people's behavior in groups in such a way that they'll be practical and ethical to use them? Um I, I think the, I mean, one of the other areas we're, we're looking at is, is what's called stratified medicine. And the basis for that is that actually we are all very, very different at the genetic level. At the, you know. So our response to drugs uh, varies all over the place. Um, so I'm guessing that, that, that sort of these moderately simple molecules, and, and oxytocin is not a complicated piece of chemistry, um, their response will vary across other people. So I would guess that if you took another group, there might be a different result, and particularly if you did it from different genetic stocks around the, the, the globe. I like the way the piece went into the wider questions we have left to ask. So I think the research is quite interesting. And mine were, were women going to be the same? And what happens if our better. friends changed? Why do <laughs> researchers always start with male subjects? I know. You can pay them more easily for the job. <laughs> I think male, male rats are easier to work with. Is that what it was? <laughs> I don't know. But even in human um, clinical trials yeah. and research, there are more male than female subjects. I've, I have no idea what the answer is, but I'm sure that the research would look quite different if you had a group of female uh, animal models. I, I agree. Anyway, I think that's unfortunately all we have time for now. David, Diana and Robert in Washington, thanks very much for joining us. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by Rob Minto. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.